Hey, this is Shane Valenstein, the pastor at City on a Hill Community Church. I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. I hope that this podcast helps you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at cityonahillmd.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? I love, love, love family breakfast. Um, I want to introduce my friend. Then Hattie is going to come up here and she's going to give her testimony. So if you guys can all listen, here she comes. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Manhattie Bennett, and um, we've been—I've uh, been coming to City on a Hill for probably about the last five years with my family. Um, you've probably seen me up here singing worship or uh, downstairs in children's ministry at one point when we were in the elementary school. Um, or maybe at an event, um, but uh, never in a million years did I think I would be up here sharing testimony, um, especially about something that's extremely deep and very dear to my heart. Um, this is a p- actually pretty much the deepest part of my soul. Um, bear with me, because I'm extremely nervous right now. <laughs> I, I don't share this with very many people. Um, They wanted me to share my testimony about Voices for Children. And the first thing I thought about was, where did my journey actually begin? Um, And I kind of recall in my teens, uh, 12-year-old me, I was uh, watching Jerry Springer. Uh, If you're of age, you know that Jerry Springer, you probably shouldn't have been watching that at 12 years old. Um, But basically, it was one of those odd holiday um, episodes that they had a team by the name of Jesse and Dave were on. And uh, they were 17 years old, and they were in California, and they were talking about their experiences of living on the street. And uh, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, why are there teenagers around my age, living on the street? You know, why are these people passing these teenagers by? You know, how have I not even seen this? Uh, am I blind to this? You know, and your 12-year-old, this is, this is a 12-year-old thinking about this stuff. And uh, it's actually carried me all the way till now. I mean, I still think about that. It's, it's funny how you can remember things so clearly because they make such an impact on your life. Um, And instantly in that moment, for me, it changed me because I knew somewhere in my life I wanted to be a part of that change. I mean, you know, 12-year-old me was like, hey, let's build a big house. Let's, Let's feed all, let's go gather these California teens and, you know, give them a warm place to stay and something to eat, you know, and, uh, it became my passion, you know, Voices for Children. And one of the things that I <clears throat> stuck out to me was that in statistics, children that are in foster care between the ages of 11 and 17 years old, they actually are, it's harder for them to become adopted. Um, they're more likely to age out and end up homeless. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, again, I'm nervous. <laughs> um, you know, and I think about 
I think about that all the time. You know, 20% of those children will end up automatically homeless on the street. I mean, can you really imagine being 18 years old? I mean, I clearly remember being 18 years old and I was immature, okay? Immature me, I was not thinking about, you know, am I gonna pay rent this month? Or am I gonna, you know, have a career? I wasn't thinking about that, I was thinking about partying. <laughs> I mean, thank you to all the 18 year olds who had their life together, that's fantastic, we love you, okay? Um, but I mean, the reality of a lot of these people, um, even some of my friends that I know, you know, they fostered, they, you know, they were fostered and their foster parent looks at them and tells them, oh, hey, you're 18, here you go, get out. That's it, 18. Um, and that really resonates with me. is me being nervous. Um, um, you know, why I do what I do is because my passion automatically became my why. And it's how can I change some of that? How can I help become a part of the solution to help just one child not become homeless? And I found Voices for Children was that answer. Um, this organization helps with some of that solution. They help bridge the gap between childhood and adulthood. Um, you become a stable voice in these children's lives. Um, you know, you help them see what their options are. You know, instead of them just being, I turned 18 and I don't know what to do because I'm sure a lot of us at 18 were thinking that. Um, it's also helping them find their voice within. You know, um, the case I'm currently on, um, it's a lot of helping them find their voices. And that's the most important thing because we all have a voice that we can use. And um, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Manhattan. I'm super proud of you. So Orphan Sunday, for those of you who have been with us the last couple of years, you know what that is. Um, but we're gonna introduce that for those that, that aren't sure what we're really talking about. We're in our Kingdom Come ser ser sermon series. And last week, if you were here with us, Pastor Shane brought the word through the story of Nehemiah. And what he was really telling was that we can't sit and wait they were called to go. To, ah, let me try that again. You're not the only one with nerves. We're called to go and do. So this week, we're going to continue that sermon series. But we're going to have it with a twist because of Orphan Sunday. And Orphan Sunday comes to us as a gift from the Church of Africa. Through a Zambian pastor, pastor's passionate call for orphans in a community that had been ravaged by AIDS and poverty, the members of this church themselves faced deep needs. But as the service ended, one after another went to the altar, some even taking their shoes off and placing them for the orphans in their community. 
And what started in Africa over two decades ago has grown into a worldwide movement. So today, over 80 nations around the world and, and at least one church in every 50 of the United States is leveraging the power of Orphan Sunday to bring awareness of the vulnerable children and families in the world. We've all probably heard that African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. And in scripture, from Paul's passage on the body of Christ to Nehemiah's building to united community in Jerusalem, or to Moses appointing 70 elders to bear the burden of the people with you, so you do not bear it alone. God's word exemplifies repeatedly that the true religion that's defined in James 1.27, and that is religion that our God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That definition of true, pure, and faultless religion is best fulfilled within community. Did you know that there's 25 different verses in the Bible in which we are commanded to care for widows and orphans? So there's no question how God feels about this. There's no question what he wants us to do. So why isn't every single Christian, every single church intentionally going and serving? It's not an easy answer. But this morning we're going to focus on two challenges that I see holding us back. The first is related to our own hearts and minds, and the second relates to the church's calling to care for orphans. As I see it, we, the church, the big church, suffer from an internal challenge of prodigal suspicion. Just think about it. I want you to think of the story in the Bible of the prodigal sons. You know the story I'm talking about, right? The younger son, he asks for his inheritance early. And in those times, that is equivalent to basically telling your father that he's dead to you. Then that said son went off and squandered his inheritance. I want you to focus on the part of the story when that son finally decided to return to his father. How did he plan to return? Did he plan to return as a son? No, he planned to tell his father that he was no longer worthy to be called his son. His thinking, he had really messed up. I mean, really, really messed up. Not only did he dishonor his father in the most profound way, but he also squandered and he belittled his love. So when he planned to return, he planned to return as his worker, not as a favored son. The prodigal was suspicious of the enormity of his father's love for him. There is a book called Children of Living God by Sinclair Ferguson, and he draws a parallel of how we often see our God to how the prodigal saw his father. He says that Jesus was underlining the fact that despite assumptions to the contrary, the reality of the love of God for us is often the last thing that dawns, to us, dawns upon us. As we fix our, so our eyes upon ourselves, on our failures, on our present guilt, it seems impossible to us that the Father could love us. So many of us go through life with the prodigal suspicion. Where does our concentration go? It goes on our failures. It goes on our sins. All of our thoughts 
are on me. So what happens in that parallel, that parable? What happens when the son returns? Does the father accept him as one of his servants? No. He sees his son coming down the road, and he runs to him, and he throws his arms around him. The son was thinking in wages earned. His father was thinking in an extravagant love and grace received. Do you see the parallel? Do you see that parallel between the son and Christian believers? Too often we are slow to return to the father after we've sinned against him. We don't think we're worthy, so we wait. We don't anticipate his fatherly embrace. And when we do finally return to him, we think of him as our master and not as our father. The result of this is that real Christian joy is absent and passionate Christian living is lacking. How hard is it for us if we doubt God's infinite love for us to care for orphans or even live the life we're called to do? I would say it's near impossible because we become so focused on our failures and shortcomings that we can't imagine a love so powerful that we're already forgiven. The community group that Chuck and I are leading, um, we're reading the Good and Beautiful series by James Bryan Smith. And the first book was called The Good and Beautiful God. The entire book focused on the character of God and how we can move into a life of intimacy with him. It was transformational in my walk. So I'm asking you guys, do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus? Or are you caught in this prodigal suspicion that you don't think that you can be forgiven? Do you question how great his love is? That prodigal suspicion, that leads to the second challenge that I want to talk about this morning, and that's the external challenge of Christian living. God has called the church to care for orphans. There is no question about that. But when we're so focused on our own failures and shortcomings that the immense challenges that are associated with that, it just becomes overwhelming and paralyzing. There is an orphan crisis in our world. And if you're not convinced of that, let me throw some statistics at you. There's over 143 million orphans in our world. 17.5 of them are zero to five. There are approximately 47 million orphans who are six to 11 years old. And to Manhattan's point, there's approximately 79 million orphans who are ages 12 to 17. Going to make that a little personal, um, in Eastern Europe, 50% of the children who age out of the system are usually dead by the time they're 25 years old. Another 25% are in jail for violent crime. 60% of the girls are trafficked. So most of you, you know my story. And I would ask you, which one would you pick to be the survivor? Because in Eastern Europe, where my kids are from, statistics are one and four would have survived and not been in jail for a violent crime. So that's our world. But surely, we here in the United States, we do so much better, right? Did you know that more than 800,000 children pass through our foster care system? 25,000 children age out each year. And like Manhattan was talking about, they have little, little social skills, little life skills that are needed to survive into adulthood. 
simple things like balancing a checkbook or even opening a bank account or cooking and shopping. Those are overwhelming. 70% of the youth in foster care have a desire to attend a college. That's fantastic. Nearly 25% of youth aging out did not have a high school diploma or a GED, and a mere 6% finished with a two or four year degree after aging out of foster care. So 70% want, have a desire to go, nearly 6% are able to meet that. 70% of the youth that age out of foster care end up in government assistance within four years, and 50% do not have a job. And those that do earn an average, ready for this, $7,500 a year. So think about your income and what is stacked against these kids. So with this many orphans in the U.S. and the world around us, the church has a monumental task before if we're really going to practice that true religion, right? That true religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself polluted by the world. No one would question that you know, pure and faultless religion is to keep oneself being polluted from the world. But there is a first half to that scripture, friends, that we cannot ignore. There's a lot of work to be done. But if Christians are not confident in God's love and delight in them, this work is really, really hard. I would say even impossible. If you do not believe that God's love is for you is so vast, enough to cover your sins, you will not have the emotional capital necessary to look after the most vulnerable in this world for the long haul. We cannot focus on our own shortcomings. We must focus our eyes on him. If we're not confident in his love, our eyes will turn inward and we'll be primarily concerned with our needs, our lack, our disappointment, rather than the needs of the most vulnerable in our community. We will be afraid to risk or do the hard things that need to be done. Or we'll serve as a way to earn God's delight. How often do we do that? Do we say, well, if I do this, maybe God will do this for me. Maybe if I care for vulnerable children, he'll be pleased with me. My friends, this is not living out the gospel. The gospel is joy-filled noise, uh, noise, joy-filled news because it speaks to us of the Father's love for us as that has been embodied in the personhood of Jesus Christ. Let's say that again. It is joy-filled news. It is joy. Both of these challenges, that internal challenge of the prodigal suspicion and that external challenge of church practice, would be greatly helped if the beautiful truth of our adoption in Christ freshly gripped our hearts. So let's talk about that. The truth of adoption showcases God's saving activity within the story of, of redemption. Have you ever really thought about that, how adoption really plays a part in our redemption? J.I. Packer writes, Adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel. It's higher even the gift of justification because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. He continues to say, Justification is a forensic idea. That means it's conceived in terms of law and viewing God as the judge. Adoption is a family idea. It's conceived, it's conceived in terms of love and viewing God as the father. 
in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of, of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. I, I wholly agree with Packer. Adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel, but it's so much more than that. Let's look at Paul's use of the term adoption. It transports us to epic events, timeline events, within this grand story of our redemption. So let's start in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. And it tells us, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship throughout, through Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So did you hear those words? We were marked for adoption into God's family before God even created the world. Before the world was even here. It was on God's mind even before dawning of humanity. So let's go to the next time epic. The time of creation to Israel's central role in the unfolding of God's story. Of his work and his redemption. In Romans 9.4... Paul identifies adoption as one of the great privileges that Israel enjoyed as God's chosen people. And he writes, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of law, the temple worship, and the promises. Scholars believe that Israel received adoption, becoming God's corporate son, when God constituted them as a nation at Mount Sinai just three months after he delivered his people from Egypt. So how significant is it that adoption shows up at this key moment with the unfolding of redemption? Let's keep going on to another time in the spot in the timeline. Galatians 4, 4 to 5, Paul writes, But when the set time had finally come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under, law, under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So what right there was identified as the grand purpose or objective of redemption? It was, it was the adoption. When you consider the central role that adoption plays within the overall story of redemption, you realize that it, it really reveals, reveals the unfathomable. God cherishes us and he delights in us, his children. He wants to be in relationship with us. Let this truth that mobilizes us be the truth to mobilize us to care for orphans with great joy and commitment. The truth of adoption empowers God's people to practice true religion. If any group of people should be inclined to visit orphans in their affliction in order that they might remove them from it, it should be those within the Christian church. So what does that mean? You could host, you could foster, you could adopt. But if you're not called to grafting a child into your family, you can come around those who are. You can volunteer with trafficking victims. You can support those that have less resources than you. You can love on a single parent who doesn't have much support. You can donate clothes or experiences to families in your community who have grafted children into their family tree. You can participate in a meal train. 
you can choose a child of one of the two angel trees that we have available this season, and I'll talk a little bit about that. You can show up. I'm going to say that again. You can show up. So right now I'm going to invite the Broadhurst family to join me. I'm going to grab that microphone. Um, and as I introduce them, I'm going to introduce them simply as a family that shows up. All right. So can you guys introduce your family? Um, do we have, hold on, hold on, give me a slide. <laughs> there we go. All right. So I know it's not a conventional family photo, but it really is like truth. Um, so myself, I'm Andrea, I go by Andy, and this is Jeremy. Um, our youngest is Jillian, she's 12, and then our oldest is Claire, and she is 18. Can you kind of explain the call that you feel God has put on your family? So I want to say maybe it was 2016, March of 2016, 26, somewhere in there. Um, at another women's group, there was a woman who was a nurse at Johns Hopkins who also did emergency foster care, and she was sharing with us about foster care, and she, well, the women, not Jeremy, obviously, um, and she was sharing, um, Johns Hopkins is a safe zone, so if you are no longer interested or can no longer care for your child, you can drop your child off, no questions asked, and then they're processed into the system, and this was like mid-March, and they had between births of children who were abandoned at the hospital, so newborns abandoned, and children dropped off, like in the middle of March, they were up to like 32 children. And I just, it broke me in a way that I, I just couldn't explain. Um, and I have always been interested in foster care. Our house is a shoebox. We have, I say, I like to say we have two and a half bedrooms because Jill's is better off being like a walk-in closet, poor kid. Um, one full bath. So really fostering long-term for us is not an option. We don't have a bedroom to give another child. Um, so that, I, I, it broke my heart. I was crying at Jeremy and I said, I can't believe that God would put something on my heart and not your heart. We're one and he, he brought us together. So Jeremy quietly took his Bible. He went, okay. And he took his Bible and he walked away to pray about it. Um, and then I want to say it was maybe a year later when we were at Crossroads um, Nazarene, and we, I don't know if you spoke, I don't remember, I know at one point, Melissa Morseberger was sharing, and Claire, she had been Claire's school nurse, so <clears throat> this made it a reality for Claire, like, this is her person, this is her people, she loved Ms. Morseberger, and Ms. Mor Morseberger was hers in her community, she knew her, it wasn't some, like, big wig, fancy person, this was someone she knew, and she turned to me, and she's like, we can do that, Mom. We can do that. And then that woman called us and said, hey, we have this kid that the, the family fell through for. Would you be willing to do it? So I tentatively am like, Jay, I don't know. There's this, like, boy, and I don't know. He, he thought it was going to be, like, a one-and-done deal. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so we said, sure, we'll take him into our home. Um, and that was actually the most work because it was the first time. But, like, I mean, so, getting the house ready. So, so by that woman, so. that woman is me. It is you. Um, it is an affectionate. It, it is a term of, of endearment. endearment. Um, yeah. So what, what exactly would the, was I asking you to do? So open hearts and homes. I always flip it. Open hearts and homes. You take someone from, it was either Latvia or Ukraine. Um, obviously right now it's just Latvia. Um, 
into your home. So in the summer, it's five weeks. Mm -hmm. I never remember the timelines because it goes really fast. Um, and the winter is um, three weeks. And you just bring them in just for that time period. So you pick them up from the airport. Like, I mean, you've seen them because you've seen their picture. They've never laid eyes on you. Um, and you bring them home, and then you just spoil them rotten. Spoil them rotten. You fold them into your family for that short term. Um, and it is, as I 